Today, I've been asked to present the Lamrim, Greatest Stages of the Path. This is a very vast topic, as we can see in this translation of Tonkapa's presentation of it. Three volumes, there's a lot of material. And so, obviously, we can't cover it in any detail. And to present a menu of everything that's in it, although, obviously, to give you an idea of what it is, it is necessary to go through, at least roughly, what the contents of this material are. So, first of all, what is the topic of this material? This material is presenting a way to access and integrate the basic teachings of the Buddha. Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago, and he lived with a community of monks that followed him. Later there was a community of nuns that also joined. And not only did he teach them, but he was invited along with his monks to various people's homes, given a meal, and then after that he would be asked to give a talk. He gave a talk. And Buddha always taught with what was called skillful means, or skillful methods, which means that he taught what each person, each person who invited him, would be able to understand. And so, obviously, some people were more spiritually developed than others, some people were more intelligent than others. So he taught various things. Buddhist followers had phenomenal memories, so at that time nothing was written down, but his monks remembered what he said and then passed it down orally to later generations. And these eventually were written down several centuries later and they became known as the sutras. And then centuries later, the uh, great Indian Buddhist masters wrote commentaries and tried to organize and put the material together. And one Indian master who uh, came to Tibet, his name was Atisha, and he made the prototype of this presentation here at Lamrim. This was at the beginning of the 11th century, so a long time after Buddha. And what he presented was a way in which each person could develop themselves eventually toward the state of a Buddha. In other words, to just read the sutras by themselves does not necessarily give us a clear spiritual path of how we start from now all the way up to Buddhahood. But from all the material that Buddhists taught, we can put it together to discover what would be stage one, stage two, stage three, etc. And this is what the Lamrim does. It presents this material in a graded order. After Atisha, there were many different, more elaborate versions that were written in Tibet. And what we have here is the version which was written by Tsongkhapa, which is probably the largest elaboration of this material. And it was written in the beginning of the 15th century. And two of the outstanding features of this material is that Tsongkhapa finds back in the sutras and the Indian commentaries all the quotations that support this material, you know, from which all this material derives, where it comes from. 
So this gives us confidence that he's not just making this up. And also he gives very elaborate, logical demonstrations of all the various points so that we have even stronger confidence in the validity of this based on logic and reason. And one of the special characteristics of Tsongkhapa is that he never skips over the most difficult points. In fact, he always focuses on the most difficult ones that previous authors tended to just skip over. And of the four Tibetan Buddhist traditions, what follows from Tsongkhapa is known as the Galupa tradition. Okay, so how do we structure a spiritual path? This is really the question. There are many different methods which have been taught in general in India. Methods for developing concentration, for instance, were common material that we find in all the other Indian traditions at the time of the Buddha. And so Buddha didn't make that up, but the question is how do we bring it into our spiritual path? And the same thing with regard to all the other facets of how we develop ourselves. So the Buddha, of course, had different understandings, different explanations of many of these points, but uh, what really is specific is his understanding of the spiritual goals. Main principle, which this is speaking, what's graded is our motivation. The term for this literature, Lam Rim. Lam is usually translated as path, but it doesn't mean something that you walk on, but rather it's talking about states of mind that act as a path for reaching a goal. And then Rim means stages of that, great stages. And what it's speaking about then are various states of mind, levels of mind that we need to develop in a graded order. And they're called a path because they lead to a goal. And again, the goal that we would aim to achieve is something that can be presented in a graded order. Like, for instance, if we want to go here in Romania to, let's say, India, well, that would be the ultimate aim, would be to reach India. But to get there, first we might have to go to, if we're going overland to Turkey, and then we might need to get to Iran, and then eventually to India. And what is graded here then is usually referred to as our motivation. And motivation, as we've seen before, is a two-part thing, according to the way it's presented in Buddhism. Motivation as referring to a certain goal or aim that we have, plus an emotion that drives us to reach that goal. Actually, a little bit more precise, there is a reason why we want to reach the goal plus an emotion that drives us there. This makes sense in terms of our usual lives. We have various goals at different stages in our life to get an education, to find a lifetime partner, to find a good job, etc., etc. And there are valid reasons for wanting to have a good education, wanting to have a good job, and so on. There are, of course, some negative emotions that might be involved. There can be positive emotions that can be involved. It differs from person to person. But in any case, this 
presentation of graduated motivations is something which deals with life, ordinary life. And so the same thing is true in terms of spiritual motivations. These are states of mind which are completely relevant to our daily lives. So, on the one hand, what am I doing with my life on a regular, what we would call the worldly level, seeing a family, having a job, etc. And what are we doing on a spiritual level that also goes hand in hand, it affects how we live. And it's very important that these two aspects of our life not be contradictory, not be exclusive to each other, but that they somehow go together harmoniously. And not only do they go together harmoniously, but each supports the other. Our spiritual life gives us strength to uh, lead our usual worldly life. Our worldly life gives us the resources to be able to do a spiritual life. Okay. So everything that we learn through these graded stages, this Lam Rim, are things that need to be applied to our everyday life. They're intended for that. Now, what we are doing then with Buddhist practice is presented here. Our Buddhist practice in general, I think, can be summed up in a few words of we are working on ourselves, working on ourselves in order to become we use general terminology, better persons. Although that term better person sounds like a judgment, and we don't really want to imply a judgment here, but I think you get the general idea. We're trying to overcome destructive behavior, negative emotions like anger and greed, selfishness, etc. Now, Buddhism isn't exclusive in the sense that it's not the only system of religion or philosophy or practice that aims for this type of goal. We find the same thing in Christianity, we find that in Islam, we find it in Judaism, we find it in humanitarianism, Hinduism, it's there, everywhere. And the Buddhist methods that we find can help us achieve this type of goal. And we can even approach these goals, becoming a better person, in a graded way. We would first want to stop acting in a destructive way, causing harm. For that, we would have to exercise some self-control. And then, on a deeper level, once we're able to exercise some self-control, we would focus on overcoming what causes us to act destructively. Anger, greed, attachment, jealousy, so on. And for that we would need to understand how these negative emotions or destructive emotions work, how they arise, and so on. And develop certain types of understanding that would help to lessen or eliminate these disturbing emotions. But on a deeper level, we would need to work on what is really underlying all these disturbing emotions. And that would be our selfishness, self-centered, thinking only of ourselves. I always have to have my way. 
And if we don't, then we get angry. We always want things to be the way that we want them to be. Why should everything be like we want it to be? There's absolutely no reason except that I want it to be like that. So everybody thinks the same, and we can't all be correct. So we would gradually work ourselves up to the point where we could try to overcome this most fundamental troublemaker, our selfishness, self-centeredness which, as we go deeper, depends on our concept of me, myself. In other words, our concept of how we exist. But it very simply, we think that I am something special. It's like I'm the center of the universe. I'm the most important one, independent of everybody else. We have to investigate, and obviously there's something very mistaken about that. That's quite distorted. So... This is a graduated path, we could say, way of developing understandings and developing states of mind. And as I said, the methods that Buddha taught are very, very helpful for these type of goals. And basically, we would want to avoid destructive behavior and disturbing emotions like anger and selfishness for a reason. And the reason would probably be because we understand that uh, when we act under the influence of these things, it causes problems. And we don't want to have these problems. It's not very pleasant at all. And we could also approach this uh, problem-making or troublemaking in a graduated way. If I act like this, it produces problems and difficulties right now. Right? We get into a big fight with somebody, you know, we could get hurt. From the jail, we uh, injure them severely. And then, on a deeper level, we would think in a long-term way that I want to avoid trouble in the future, not just right now. Uh, so we're talking about later in my life. And we develop ourselves a little bit further. We would also want to avoid causing trouble and problems for our family, for our loved ones, for society. And all of that is within the boundaries of this lifetime. But we could even think further and think in terms of I want to avoid causing problems and troubles to future generations, like the problem of global warming. With all of these motivations, it's not that we give up the earlier ones when we develop the later ones, but they are cumulative. They add to each other. So this is the general principle of a graded path. But what I have described here is what I would call Dharma light. I've made up these terms, Dharma light and real thing Dharma, uh, parallel to Coca-Cola light and real thing Coca-Cola. <laughs> Dharma uh, is a Sanskrit word referring to the teachings of the Buddha. So light means that it is helpful, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's not the strong, real version in the actual presentation of the Lamrim we find in the Tibetan traditions. That is the real thing. But this real thing, Dharma, is for most of us too strong to start with. And the main reason for that is that it totally assumes that we fully believe in rebirth. 
And so everything that's in here is based on that premise that there is rebirth. And then we start working for improving future lives, avoiding trouble in future lives, etc. So if we don't believe in future lives, how could we possibly be sincere in our motivation to improve our future lives? This is not possible. And so for us who have uh, questions about future lives, about rebirth, past and future, and who certainly are not uh, convinced of it, in fact, maybe we don't even understand it, we have to start with Dharma Light and be honest with ourselves in terms of what am I actually aiming for in my spiritual practice? And for most of us, what we are aiming for is to make this life a little bit better. It's a valid aim, but that's just a first step, but a very necessary step. So when we are at that level of Dharma light, then what is very necessary is to acknowledge that this is Dharma light, this is not the real thing. And not to confuse the two, because if we confuse the two, then we reduce Buddhism merely to another form of therapy. So that's not fair to Buddhism. We also need to acknowledge that the real thing Dharma and what they're talking about, I don't even understand what they're talking about, let alone believe that it's true. But I will be open-minded about it and say, okay, maybe this is correct, what they're talking about, future lives and liberation and enlightenment and all these things. And meanwhile, I will work on the Dharma light level and as I develop myself more and more, and study more, and meditate more, then maybe I will understand what they're talking about in the real thing Dharma. So, like that, perfectly valid and sound way of proceeding, based on respect for Buddha, that Buddha wasn't speaking just nonsense when he spoke about these things. And also, what we might acknowledge is that certain ideas that we might have of what future lives mean and what liberation, what enlightenment mean, that maybe they're quite incorrect and maybe Buddhism wouldn't accept that either. About future lives, about liberation, about enlightenment, what they mean, what I think they mean, and I think this is ridiculous, Buddha might also say it's ridiculous because it's a wrong understanding of it. You know, like some soul with wings flies out of the body and then enters into another body. Buddha wouldn't accept that either. Or that we could become God himself, or self. herself, or itself, whatever. So, that's the basics. And all the methods, or at least most of the methods that are presented in this graded path, can be applied in a Dharma light way or a real thing Dharma way. Although some of the methods really depend on understanding future lives. In order to be able to develop equal love toward everybody, one of the methods is to recognize that if everybody has had beginningless rebirth and there is a finite number of beings, then it follows logically that everybody at some time has been our mother and at some time we've been the mother of everybody. 
and one could present a mathematical proof of the logic of this, of no beginning but finite number of beings, that it's like this. Right. There were infinite time, but infinite number of beings, and you couldn't prove it. But it works this way. So, that is very difficult to relate to if we don't think in terms of infinite previous rebirth. Right? But on that basis, then we think in terms of motherly love, appreciating it, wanting to be nice in return, etc. So there's a whole development that's based on it. And it's just a matter of time of when this person or that person was our mother. If we haven't seen our mother in 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 years, she's still my mother. And so similarly, if we haven't seen her in 10 lifetimes, she's still my mother. So this is a way of thinking that can be very helpful if you believe in rebirth. If you don't believe in rebirth, it's nonsense. Especially when we... <laughs> bring in mosquitoes, not just people. But this mosquito was my mother in a previous lifetime. So we've seen that rebirth can be in any form that has mental activity. So we can have a Dharma-like version of this, which is that no matter who we see, it's quite possible that this person could bring us home, take care of us, feed us. Everybody's capable of that. But if we've traveled... Very often we find that complete strangers can be really very nice to us, offer us hospitality, etc. So everybody is capable of that. So everybody could act like a mother to me. And this is true whether they're a woman or a man, it doesn't really matter. And even if they're a child, well, when they get older, they could help me like a mother, take care of me like a mother. So that's very, very helpful. However, it's quite limited because it's very difficult to think that this mosquito could take me home and take care of me like a mother. So, I think that illustrates a little bit how we can have methods that can be applied on a Dharma light level and a real thing Dharma level. And both of them are very helpful, but the Dharma light version is limited. The real thing opens up a much larger universe of possibilities. And whether we're applying a Dharma light or a real thing Dharma method, the point is to apply it in daily life. So when we are caught in traffic or waiting in a long queue or something, or sitting in a bus, and we get angry or impatient with the other people in the traffic or the other people in line, we can view all the other people as being like my mother, either in some past lifetime, or they could be nice to me in this lifetime like a mother, and it helps to quiet our anger and develop more patience. If our mother is ahead of us in the queue, we don't mind <laughs> that she gets served first. So, like this. In fact, we probably would be happy that she gets served first. So we always try to apply these understandings. We're developing states of mind, not just that you have while you're sitting on a meditation cushion, but that you apply in life. So this is what I mean when I describe this uh, Dharma process as working on ourselves. When we meditate in a quiet, controlled atmosphere, like in our room, sitting on the cushion or whatever position is comfortable, 
we are practicing generating these types of understanding, these more positive states of mind, and we use our imagination to imagine other people, think of other people, and develop this attitude toward them. And although it's not a traditional method, nevertheless, I think that it's perfectly valid to look at pictures of people as well in our meditation. I mean, they didn't have pictures of people two and a half thousand years ago, so I don't think there's a problem in adopting our modern technology through this process. But when we have developed sufficient familiarity with this state of mind, this positive state of mind, then, of course, in our daily life, we try to apply it. That's the whole purpose. To think loving thoughts while you're you know, sitting on your cushion, but you get angry with your family, and at work, something's not working properly. It's very important not to regard or treat our meditation practice as an escape from life. You know, I'll sit here and meditate and calm down. It's like an escape, or escape into some sort of fantasy land of picking up, you know, all sorts of incredible things. But rather, what we are doing in our meditation practice is training to be able to deal with the problems of life. And it's hard work. And we shouldn't fool ourselves or let ourselves be fooled by advertising that it's easy. It's not easy to overcome selfishness. These aren't easy things to overcome. Based on very, very deep habits. And the only way to overcome them is to change our attitudes towards things and get rid of the confusion that underlies these destructive states of mind. Okay, so I think that's enough of a basic introduction. Let's have our break and then we will go further.